Welcome to Sustainable 232. Welcome yourself to Sustainable 232, Oh, Here we are, day late, but we're a day late for a reason in your friendly little weekly environment podcast, all about people and the planet, and why, despite everything being noised, we can have a chuckle about it every now and then, isn't we, all? Yes. And why are we a day late? We're a day late because there's been a cop, and there's been a cop what is done... And we thought we'd speak to somebody who was there to find out what's been done, what it was like, how it was done, um, and give you a hot take straight off the press. So that's what we're doing. So sorry you didn't have this for your normal Monday morning cup of coffee or whatever, but you'll have it just as soon as we can do the edit. When I say we, I of course mean not me. So we had a chat to someone who was at the cop for most of all of it. All of, yeah. All of, yeah, all of it. That is an uh, old friend of ours, Craig Bennett. What is the boss now, chief executive of the Wildlife Trusts? Very long in the tooth campaigner, has been around campaignerising for a very, very long time. Taught us everything he knows, didn't he? Taught oh, us everything yeah. he knows. Not yeah. sure he'd appreciate being described as very long in the tooth, but well, um, he slightly has longer been, in the so. tooth than we are, so it's <laughs> fair enough, isn't it? That's very long in the tooth, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and we, but we wanted to find out. So this isn't one of those podcasts where it's like, and of course the big problem was that article 9.2 was not properly it's not one of those which we'll learn about what it's like to be at a cop particularly this cop what you make of the fact that everyone's kind of going it's a bit meh like should we be meh about it or not and yeah the main things that what did happen what may be a reason to be slightly cheerful but also who the bastards are exactly now talking of bastards you can see me and dave in the flesh on zoom what? Not in the flesh, but, you know, on on Zoom. Can you? Oh, heavens. Well, not right now, but no, oh, if you okay. come, if you come to a Q&A featuring us, a live Q&A on the 9th of December, where we are going to be talking to some clever people who know all about nuclear power, including the director of The Atom, A Love Affair, which is a splendid documentary sort of docufilm. Um, all about nuclear power and it's kind of weird wonderful history Uh, so that is a thing you can come and join in with on the 9th of december we'll put the links in the show notes and on twitter and facebook and stuff Uh, and because you are spending for us people uh, you can come along for eight quid unless of course you are even more splendiferous patreon person what supports us on patreon in which case you can come along for four quid Uh, and that is I mean, that's still daylight robbery for listening to me, but, you know, that's good value for Dave. Just the usual disclaimers. We do work for environmental charities, do we not all? Yes. But these are very much our own views. So if anything that we say makes you come over all Beverly Hills cop about things, (laughs) take it up with me and all, but not with anyone for whom we work. Yes? Yes. And also, as alluded to by all just then, we are a listener-supported podcast. So if you like what you hear and you wish to dip into your teeny-weeny little pockets and give us some teeny-weeny bits of your teeny-weeny dosh, you can do so by going to wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com slash sustainababble, where you can not only get discount upon Ol and Dave doing a Q&A, but you get to find out when we've got a lot of warning about a guest and ask questions to them and generally have your finger on the babble pulse. Right, so this is our interview with Craig. And, you know, the reason we delayed it is because we were waiting for an outcome of COP. And there has been an outcome. There is a deal. There is a piece of paper, a couple of pieces of paper, saying what people are going to do. But we don't really understand that deal. So we asked Craig, you see this deal, right? Is it, and I mean this in the 
strictest possible terms. Shit. I wish I was in Glasgow with some good old friends of mine. What I officially said was uh, <laughs> baby steps. Uh, baby steps when what was needed was giant leaps forward. Uh, and I, I tell you what, uh, at the end of these cops, I always, I always agonise about the verdict. You know, I hate it. Actually, I really get is one of the few things I actually really get nervous about in advance is how to call a cop at the end of it, because uh, it's never going to be good. It's never going to be anything like enough to deal with this bonkers situation we find ourselves in. And yet, if you write it all off and dismiss it, that's not good either. So um, and there were some steps forward at this cop, but obviously nowhere near, nowhere near what needs to be so um if i'm honest i was quite pleased with baby steps but giant leaps forward needed i was finding <laughs> i felt that that felt about right but anyway but it's a tricky job isn't it because like pretty much what you said was pretty much what you know pick up a commentator like a king edward or something it's a little potato joke um oh. then <laughs> uh, that's pretty much what everyone says right and doesn't that all just feel a bit meh doesn't it feel like we all sat around, well, you all sat around for two weeks in a shed and then out of it you're like, yeah, well, you know, it's better than getting kicked in the teeth, but not much, or what? Yeah, well, it's kind of the truth of it, though. But, I mean, but the thing is, so I always say, uh, the, the thing is, is that with these cops, the one thing I hate is how they're often built up by many as if they are the only game in town, which we know they're not. You know, it's not where the big leadership is going to come from. It's not where the exciting movement forward on tackling the climate and nature emergency is going to come from. None of that. It is at best raising the bottom bar of what's going on, you know, it, and, and ratcheting that up. And actually, you were at the bottom bar the other night, weren't you, Dave? <laughs> uh, yes, very good. I'm also uh, many responses to that. I'm also going to award the first klaxon for ratcheting that up. There we go. So you Thank can expect to be klaxoned merrily if you use terms <laughs> like that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Do you know? Actually, apparently, the word ratchet, even in the jargon, didn't really work because it doesn't translate into other languages very well, and it's a peculiarly silly anglophone thing. So, a lot of other countries, different languages, really didn't understand the phrase ratchet, which is quite entertaining. Oh, does that mean the ratchet mechanism is dead? Oh, loves the ratchet mechanism. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 now called what's it called now? The uh, Lord lift us up where we belong mechanism. Something like that. Yeah, 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 I think so. uh, but it is it is it is that bottom bar, and it's you know it's 196 countries doing lowest common denominator. Does that get a claxon? Yeah, no, I don't no, know. That's all right. That's, yeah, that's, I think that's all right. That's not, yeah, that's common yeah. violence. I'll give you yeah. that. Uh, lowest common denominator. So it's, you're never going to see it having come some kind of breakthrough or anything like that. But it's still important that you you try and get that basic bottom level moving up, and uh, and and it's worth doing that. But um, it's not where you're going to see the big exciting moves forward. Ray, he's kicked the ball. <laughs> now the ball's over there. That man has it now. That's an interesting development. <laughs> Maybe what he'll does everyone, kick the ball. Why does everyone talk about it as if it is then? I is don't it, know. Is it just because it, the world's media love a moment and it, and it makes sense to have a moment and the drama of... You know, that sort of binary thing. Is it going to be a success or a failure? 
Is, is that just a sort of media confection or is there something a bit more to it? Because it always seems like it's built up every time. It seems like it's built up as the last chance to save the planet or something. Well, here, here's the thing. Um, I mean, yes, it is the media and everyone kind of likes a moment in one sense. But equally, um, even the tiny, tiny progress we have made probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for building up as a moment. It certainly wouldn't have happened with the you know, hundreds of thousands of people marching, all those, that makes a huge, huge difference. So it, it is only inching forward. But I mean, you wouldn't even get that if you didn't have have it put it in the spotlight in the way that it, it does and the media does. I mean, you got, it is extraordinary what's just happened over the last couple of weeks in terms of, you know, for people like us that have been working on these things for years, actually to see, you know, climate change being headline, number one issue on the news every night for two, three weeks, it's extraordinary, and that makes that does shift the politics of the piece, and that's important. So it's useful from that point of view. But there's a sort of a time lag, really, um, between how that filters down. I always th- say, I always think there's three kind of cops, really. There's not just one cop. There's one cop which is the kind of political narrative and framing, yeah. And on that, you get all, <laughs> all the Dave and I were going to make the same joke. Yeah, both of us are there of it. <laughs> But you get one. Well, you get one cop, which is all the world leaders coming together and competing in uh, their rhetoric, how much they can say about how much they care about the planet, and so on. And it's uh, of course we should dismiss that in many respects, but actually it is quite useful as well because um, you know the world sees that. And actually, if world leaders start to say this is important, then then other things outside of the UN process start to shift forward as well. Then you have the next cop, which is all these kind of informal. Uh, uh, agreements, so the bilaterals between countries, between com- countries and companies and industry sectors and so on. And a lot of those are voluntary and they sit outside of the UN process and it's quite easy to dismiss them, but actually they can be quite significant at the same time as well. Ooh, like, and move like, things like forward. M- methane, we talked about this in our last episode. We talked all about methane. So is that a bilateral thing? That this yeah. agreement well, that's a, not that's a multilateral thing. There was many countries involved in that. So bilateral would be the US-China agreement that happened ah. in Glasgow. Oh um, yeah, that's new. That's new. Without without like being a you know climate person about it, what 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 did they say they were going to do? Not an awful lot. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Except they both said they both care about climate change and they want to work together to do something. This decade was almost the cu- crucial phrase. Okay. Um, and Sorry, they, want, they and, want to work together this decade, or they want they to want do to work together this decade. this decade on doing some stuff together this decade, basically. So that, okay. that was really significant. <laughs> That's clear. That's clear. Yeah. Uh, And then there was something on coal, and there was something on methane, there's something on forests, something on cars. Uh, and then you have that Beyond Oil and Gas Coalition that was started by Costa Rica and Denmark. That's oh, yeah, very I saw that. Interesting. That yeah. was very interesting, saying let's set a date for ending oil and gas. People would be sceptical about it and saying that was partly because Denmark and Costa Rica don't have any oil and gas. But nonetheless, it is, um, it's quite, is, I think that could be quite significant. <laughs> there is no room for such cynicism on this podcast yeah. as well, yeah. you know. I imagine the UK joined that, did they? That, that uh, no, but Wales did, actually. And Scotland oh! says they're thinking about it. And the UK said they're not, but it's, you know, you can put pressure on them now. So those kind of things, they're not, you know, none of them are going to save the world, as it were, strangely enough. But um, it's all helpful. And in the way that there was the big fight in the big text, as the really formal text, which I'd then say is the third cop, the formal text, in the way there was the fight about coal this time around. But the fact that coal got mentioned is only because you know, previous COPs, there were those kind of bilaterals and multilaterals about coal, for example. So these things, 
over time, you get the narrative, first of all, that COP where they compete for it, that then sets up these other multilateral agreements outside the formal UN process uh, at a following COP or later on, and then that sets up perhaps a shift in the text. It all That much takes time. It would be really nice. This would all work really well if it wasn't for the fact that this is about an issue where time really matters. That's the only little problem about all that. There is a time to surf and there is a time to wax your board. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about surfing. So, then, uh, on balance, weighing it all up, the good cop, the bad cop, the kindergarten cop, all of it, bearing in mind it's all very difficult, on a scale of 1 to 10, how f are we now? We're still in a very bad place. We're right. still in a massively bad place. But, I mean, again, you know, you can tell... I'll tell you what's really hard about this. There's not a binary answer. Because you can tell two truths I said truths that in my here. work presentation. I did a clever slide <laughs> that was just ones and zeros and said, what's this? And people oh, said, clever. ones That's and zeros. Clever. That's like 110,000 or... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's, don't be binary about it. I said you can't. It's a silly thing to say. Is it good or is it bad? I, you know, we could we could talk if we really wanted to for hours about how there's been extraordinary progress made in some ways. I mean, uh, you know, I can certainly remember when we were still very clearly heading in terms of the emissions that were expected for a six percent, uh, sorry, six degree rise in the years ahead seven degree rise, all those kind of things. It's now thought if countries deliver on their pledges that we might, you never know, get to hold temperature rises at about 2.4 degrees. And that's, you know, that's a move forward from six degrees, seven degrees to 2.4 degrees. And there's these other kind of things happening. So you could tell a big story about how things are moving broadly in the right direction. Or you can tell another story about how this is a complete sellout that, uh, you know, from a climate justice point of view, this is the rich countries not doing nearly enough. It is absolutely disgraceful how they didn't, rich countries didn't put enough money on the table, didn't even reach that 100 billion US dollars that they promised 10 years ago, 20 billion US dollars short, put it in perspective, that's around half the cost of the UK road building programme. I mean, that's peanuts in the scheme of things. And it is absolutely shameful how they didn't agree a mechanism on uh, loss and damage, which uh, that's oh. not jargon at all. I don't <laughs> no, think it, it, it's not jargon, but you do need to explain what it is. Yes, <laughs> so it's basically paying for the fact that rich countries cause this problem, but it's the poorest people in the world that are suffering most from it. And can they compensate and help the poorest people in the world deal with the impacts of climate change? Quite Moses, reparations. That's reparations, like. kind of. Some people call it reparations, others don't use that word quite deliberately. <laughs> but um, yes, it's basically reparations. And um, and actually, uh, Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, threw in two million quid last week uh, into that reparations pot, the first country to do so. Uh, and obviously, two million quid will make all the uh, difference. Sorry, did you say 100, 100 billion was needed? No, no, no. Trillions are needed for reparations. Oh, super. Okay. Yes. But we've got two million now. But we've got two million from Scotland. And I think Nicola Sturgeon was very keen she was the first to do that so um it, from a climate justice point of view absolutely it's a sellout it's a disgrace and all those things the problem is those two narratives i've just said i would say are both true yeah This is the thing, though, right? Like, all, uh, someone was asking me for my opinion on it, and I went, uh, it's kind of what I think about everything to do with climate change, which is it is possible, indeed necessary, to hold about 25 different opinions all at once. So 
it's not good enough, but it's better than nothing. Uh, they did everything they could within the constraints of geopolitics. Geopolitics are rubbish. All of these things all at once, right? Um, so how, like, is it possible? Is it just completely impossible to go, this thing was positive, like, given all of that? Uh, no, positive things did come out of it. Um, right. But but you just can't judge it on those two weeks. You know, that what really matters is... I mean, in 10 years' time, if we're really lucky, we might look back. You know, if, if the things go the right way, you might say Glasgow was the place where they agreed they had to increase the, their uh, nationally determined contributions. In yes. other words, the pledges. There we are. Get it. No. There we go. There we are. Have some of those. Uh, yeah. What countries are pledging to do uh, is not enough at the moment. So they've agreed in uh, Glasgow that they will come back and look at it every year now, as opposed to just every five years. And actually, that's the only, from where we are right now, if what countries are promising to do is not enough, actually coming back every year and offering something more is a good step forward, in all honesty. Baby, a baby step. A baby step forward, as I was saying, when we needed a great leap. So, um, you know, it, 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 we're not where we need to be. And But here's the thing. Actually, the real problem with that is we should have started 20 years ago, 30 years ago on this. Not, we did, didn't we? There was COP, this is COP26. Not quite. But actually, government's really taking action. They should have started uh, much longer ago to make any difference on this. I mean, that's the other thing. You, you, you have to still step back from this and think, and, and this is me desperately trying to, trying to grasp things to hold on to here that will make us kind of feel better. But um, if... It, it, when I think back to Copenhagen uh, COP back in 2009, um, you know, it, all the focus then was around the two degree target and there were a bunch of sort of climate justice campaigners and others and, and small island states, the countries that are most likely to be affected by climate change, saying two degrees isn't good enough, it's going to be 1.5. There were lots of people dismissing that and saying, if you do that, you'll bring down the talks and that's a disgrace. What happened in the last two weeks is everyone agreed it's got to be 1.5. They're not at the moment delivering the plans to do that, but that's pretty significant actually that we now, you know, locked in 1.5. Would have been a lot easier if we'd locked it in in 2009 in Copenhagen. It'd be a lot easier to achieve, but uh, you know they've they've done that now. And actually, loss and damage was originally uh, that uh, being completely dismissed, um, or reparations, as you call it, Dave. It's not being completely dismissed now. It's not happening. There's a there's a dialogue about it when there should have been a so-called facility set up in Glasgow to help deal with it. So it's not happening. But it's a it's kind of interesting when you look over time. These things that people said, no, that will never happen. Uh, actually, they're just starting to happen now. I just wish it would move faster. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Can you feel any sort of sympathy or or how do you feel towards like the, the individuals involved in this? Because when I read about like Alok Sharma surviving on Lucozade tablets because he didn't have time to eat and yeah, right at the last he? minute when he was literally yeah. about to bring the gavel down on the deal which was going to say we're going to have a coal phase out 
apparently negotiators from India and China said, oh, we better have a phase down. Like, on a human level, that's got to be a kick in the balls, isn't it? And I know that, like, these are politicians. Like, our job is not to worry for their sensibilities. And I know that the UK was a big part of, like, as you say, pulling the rug from under, under the loss and damage stuff. So it's not that this is, you know oh, aren't China and India nasty? Good old blighty trying to do its thing. I know that's not true. But on a personal level, like, do you feel kind of anything for these people or are you just like, get on with it, just save us, please? Yeah, I do, actually. I think it's a very good question to ask. I think, uh, you know, I wonder if any of us actually in those positions could necessarily do better as individuals in those circumstances. Bear in mind... It's their governments telling them what to do and setting the agenda. You know, it's not. I don't think. Um, don't think anyone there. Uh, the real problem is like the five hundred lobbyists from the fossil fuel companies in that meeting. That's the people that are. Yeah, was that was that like a thing? Was that yeah. really? Yeah. That's how. Five hundred lobbyists from fossil fuel companies. That's who I'd point the finger at. There were individual negotiators there working their pants off to try and get a good deal and to try and do the right thing for the planet and people around the world. And uh, it's really, really tough. And, you know, my heart goes out slows. I mean, you see them, they work through the night. They really do. They work really hard. But the problem is, is, you know, uh, the White House uh, saying, no, we're not going to have a facility on loss and damage. And the UK agreeing with them and and you know or not standing up to them and um you know the the problem is yes beijing and delhi not uh, agreeing with the phase out of coal but they agreed with it originally and what happened why is it that they changed their position during the course of the cop it's because of the coal industries in india and china that pushed that as well so you know those are the people i have the problem with and the politicians that cave into that not the negotiators who are trying really really bloody hard in very difficult circumstances in the vast majority of cases and you see them doing that i mean i certainly saw a lot of cans of iron brew being drunk by the negotiators when we were in glasgow and they really some of them seem really quite addicted to it now and i'm wondering quite how they will source it, source it when they get back to their home country <laughs> it's, it's bad enough that these things are always like people have been up for 48 hours and you know have not been not seen their family for two weeks that's bad enough anyway that that's when we take decisions on the most important things in the world without fueling full of iron brew at the same time <laughs> So what's it you what's it like? Like what do you spend your time doing? Where have you basically been for the last is it two weeks you're up there for? However mm, long you're up there two for weeks. Anyway. Like what's it is it just like a big tent or what? No, it, it's absolutely colossal is the first thing to understand. That there was it's estimated there were forty thousand people inside the cop. Okay. So Whoa. it's much more like I'd say ironically, it's much more like going into an airport. Uh, and I obviously I've never been in an airport in my life you understand but I'm reliably informed into a what Craig well, sorry, what no, I don't, don't know what they are but I'm reliably informed it's a lot, lot like going into an airport and and first of all that's the from the point of view of security yeah so you get there and at this cop as well you had COVID as well the, the COVID situation as well so you had to arrive each morning with your pass of course you had to show that they check that your face is the same as that, which means you have to pull down your mask. Each morning, we also had to do a lateral flow test and register it as a register the negative test. And you had to wait till you got your text or your email back on your phone and show that to security before they let you in. Uh, then you go through and you go through 
airport-style security at the very least, or even, you know, stronger than that in some respects. And, you know, you have to drink water from your water bottles to prove it's not something else and all of these kind of things. <laughs> really? And it's absolutely, yeah, and that's absolutely huge. That's a huge, huge, huge tent uh, that does that. And I tried to get a photo of that, but to give you an idea, suddenly, as soon as anyone saw me trying to get a photo of that, they leapt out of a dark corner and threatened to take my phone off me. So they're very strict about all that bit. Then you go through and there's another layer of security where they check your credentials again to get in. And so that all takes about takes about 40 minutes to get in each morning, which is quite significant. Wow. The thing that's exciting, this is the thing that excites me a lot of people don't realise, is the moment you pass that point, technically you're no longer in Scotland, you're in UN territory. Oh. That, I always get a real kick out of that. So it is for the duration is it like being, of... like being in an embassy? Yeah, like, so exactly like that. And <laughs> there's a bit of a legal, there's a bit of dispute because I was looking into this when I, when I was up there, whether it's kind of, whether you're no longer in Scotland or whether you're in UN territory, but sort of floating on top of Scotland, as it were, <laughs> as, as I understand. But to put it into perspective, that means UN law applies rather than Scottish law. So we were kind of like, my colleague Elliot and myself were kind of understanding if, understanding if he decided to try and kill me while we were in the cop it does scottish does he get tried under scottish law under un law and um you can probably imagine why he was quite keen to sort of try that out and see imagine what that's, that's a conversation that got more acute as the week, it, it, week it did as a couple of weeks went on but things like that fascinate me and when you and when you're in the cop is a is a is a jaffa cake a biscuit or a cake when you're in there oh, I, do you know i didn't test that one i was too busy drinking the iron brew And when you're in there, the way it does compare to an airport is, of course, you have all the nationalities. The whole world is there. People from whether it's government delegates, business, NGOs, whatever, indigenous peoples, uh, the whole world is there. And so, you know, you see a lot of people in suits, a lot of and, and people like to dress to, to, to show what they are. So the business people dress in suits and the NGOs dress in sort of NGO clothes, as you can probably imagine, whatever that Please. is. Exactly, something like that. And then, obviously, you get your indigenous peoples walk along. They they will be wearing, you know, a head, headdress or whatever to really make a point that that's what they are and kind of quite right too. So that has that amazing feeling of sort of the whole melting pot of the world coming together, which I get a buzz out of. And then there's the... Um, uh, you get different sections of it. You have all the kind of... One whole section of it will be all the big rooms, the plenaries. There are two massive plenaries where you've got to bear in mind there's enough desks... There's 200 desks with room for several people to sit at each for all the governments of the world and the observers. Mm. I mean, these are massive halls the size of aircraft hangars, and there's two of those. And then they have smaller uh, ones as well for meetings to take place. Then you have uh, the one I get the kick out as well as is the uh, delegation offices are normally in a warehouse. So there will be one warehouse somewhere where every country government has been given a shed within that. And that is their office for the duration. And they're put around in alphabetical order. And so you get China in a box next to and that's the Chinese government for the duration. And then Do you, you literally next to it, you mean get, shed. Do you mean yeah, literally, literally a shed? sheds, literally Amazing. sheds. And then you get, so that's China. We'll have the chi Chinese little flag on it. And that's uh, that's China. That's the Chinese government in there. And then next to it is the Canadian government. And next to it, the Cameroon government. And they go around in alphabetical order around those kind of things. And then, you know, there might be the International Maritime Organization over there or something in another box and things. And that is kind of weird walking around that warehouse. And you just think all the world's governments here are represented by a relatively handful of people. And they're all in these boxes. And then you have another area, which is where you have, it's a bit more like the trade fair and it's full of all the pavilions and, you know. People flogging uh, arms and stuff. 
people flogging, well, almost. <laughs> you certainly have the country pavilions. So a lot of the countries will have their pavilion, which is might be talking about what a brilliant job they're doing on trying to tackle climate change. That's normally what goes on. So the Russian Federation had a big pavilion at this one, talking about all the brilliant jobs they're doing on tackling climate. And, Long uh, talk, was it? Was it a relatively like brief that. talk. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, Qatar, for example, had a pavilion for this one, uh, talking about what a brilliant job they're doing in tackling climate change because they had models of all the venues they're going to be using in the World Cup and talked about how they all use a little bit of renewable energy. So there's a little things like that. Right. Uh, and then some of the really big oh, NGOs had pavilions <laughs> as well and then others. So you get a sense that there's, there's this. So it's a massive thing. And then you have all the catering things as well, of course, because 40,000 people need feeding. So you have two massive catering. Uh, cafeterias you have coffee places you have loads of other things and always the big talk of any cop is what what's the food and drink like within there and and um and then lots of people complaining about the wi-fi and uh, all this kind of stuff so you know that's uh, that gives you a sense of it so in terms I'm just astonished by the scale that you've described there of the sheer number of people. I knew it was big, but I definitely didn't know it was that kind of scale. And this is going to sound like a cynical question, but like, what were the vast majority of people there for? Mm. Like, there can't be very many people in that thing that you just described who could actually influence what was going on. Like, why were they there? I would agree. So um, what you will have is, uh, you're absolutely right, the number of people working on that. You know, I talked about the three cops before. The number of people working on the formal text is relatively small. I mean, still thousands, you know, it's all the government delegations. Uh, Some of the NGOs will be following that and trying to influence it. I mean, if you want to influence that, you certainly can't just turn up a cop and try and influence it. You have to I've got some text. Yeah, it doesn't work I've got a few words. You've got to be following it all the time. You've got to go to... And, and this is the other thing. It's not like these cops just suddenly happen. I mean, there's the attention of the, a cop happening every year. But actually, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change has meetings lasting all, all year long. That's what the, the COP is. is the conference of the parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the meetings are happening all the time. And that's how the delegations get to know each other and the negotiators get to know each other. And if you really want to influence that, you've got to be committed to being involved in that throughout all the time, not just suddenly turn up to a COP and think you can make a difference. And some NGOs do that. Some international NGOs do that. And you can you can influence it through, through that kind of approach. But... Um, Everyone else there, all the other people there, will be engaged much more in those kind of bilateral initiatives, multilateral initiatives taking place, or the trade fairs, the pavilions, things like that. So actually, a lot of those pavilions uh, were having, were running their equivalent of, of conferences. So rather than just talk about the Qatar one and things, actually a really good one was the Peatlands Pavilion, which was a bunch of NGOs coming together to talk about how very important Peatlands are. And uh, for the whole of those two weeks, actually, they were running basically a huge conference around peatlands with people joining virtually from around the world, speakers in person as well. And lots of these pavilions were basically running these conferences in their own right. that were huge things. So lots of people are doing that. And that does help shape the narrative long term. That's kind of important. And that's going on. Obviously, loads of media there, thousands of sort of me- people from the media side of things. Um, and uh, But you also do get quite a few people just turning up to get to get a feel of what it's like. 
Um, and, you know, you could question, are they actually doing anything with it? But they, they might be. I don't know. But you do get so-called cop tourists. I have yeah. so little time for that. I agree. There is, there is sometimes, <laughs> I think there is a good bunch of people that want to say that they were there. They just want to go home and say, oh, yes, I was there. And, you know. I'm just laughing because I'm pretty sure a sizable amount of our audience were what you've just described as a cop tourist. I know at least one person was. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking three episodes, four episodes ago now, to, to a guy called Bamba, who was an artist, who was the guy, Craig, I don't know if you saw it, who took a massive model polar bear all the way from the south of England and he walked yeah. it overland yeah. to Glasgow. Absolutely amazing. Got loads of coverage. And we were talking to him about it. And, and we said to him, what are you doing it for? And he just, he almost described it in terms of a pilgrimage. He was like, I just, yeah. I'm just going there. It's important to be there. Um, and to what extent is that true for you as well, right? I mean, you're there in an official capacity, but does, was there any way in which, say, they'd gone, you know what, Craig, we don't need you in an official capacity? Would you have needed to be there somehow anyway? Uh, I would have, I think I would have felt, it would have felt odd to have not been there. And that's partly, and I would have felt, you know, fear of missing out if I hadn't been there for sure. I think for me in particular, you know, is that there's the Wildlife Trust, we, in truth, we'd be the first to say we, it's not that we've done huge amounts of work on climate change in the past, you know, specifically following those kind of negotiations. Wildlife Trust hadn't been part of a COP in the past. But, uh, you know, when I started this job, the message was we want to be doing a lot more work on climate. And um, it was it was really important that we were there and we were trans. What we thought we could do, we set a very clear, narrow objective for us from it, which is to take what was happening and uh, try and raise the role, talk about the role that nature can play in helping tackle climate change and indeed the impact it has on nature and also tell that back to a British audience and hold the UK government to account on what it needs to do on that. So we had a very narrowly defined role and, you know, we were clear from the outset, there's no way we're going to try and influence the text, for example. So, you know, and you, you could, we didn't even try and do that. And, and dormouses. Um, what about the dormouses? <laughs> and dormouses, exactly. Uh, I might have mentioned peat bogs a few times, that kind of thing. Um, but... Um, and, and being really clear what you want to achieve out of it is very important. But you know what? There is an also a point that you end up having uh, shed loads of meetings, uh, sometimes in sheds, uh, that would be really hard to have uh, otherwise. You know, there's a lot of people there and you can make connections and, and uh, you know, actually meet people internationally that's very useful and all those kind of things. And in terms of your uh, guy, Bamba, with the polar bear and so on, what negotiators said to me time and again is all that public pressure in all its different ways really helps. So the interesting thing is, is I know the media is quite cynical about, you know, the impact that, say, Greta and uh, her gang would have on it. But I can tell you, every negotiator I spoke to says it makes a massive difference when you've got, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people outside building that pressure around the world they really hear it and it really it it, it dials up the the uh the tension to try and get some some kind of deal that inches forward and so it's it's definitely worth it from that point of view anything that builds that pressure And the doomsday device is real. And the clock is ticking 
to the furious rhythm of hundreds of billions of pistons and turbines and furnaces and engines. You know how Boris Johnson is green Jesus and everything good that came out of these climate talks was single-handedly down to him and he has now uh, saved the planet, yeah? Is that right? How much, how much has Boris Johnson personally made a difference? Because Ian Arf got a lot of coverage out of looking like he was saying this was important. There was, um, there was quite a lot of criticism of him from uh, some of the negotiators I heard. Um, so the frustration <laughs> is, is that, uh, I mean, we can, we can say all the, all the things you'd expect me to say, like um, it really was a problem. I mean, you cannot underestimate uh, what a problem it was that the government cut foreign aid uh, nine months ago. You know, given that we knew finance was going to be absolutely crucial to success in COP26 and we're trying to... So like the, that, that does get noticed, that stuff. It like really that got noticed wow. that, you know, in the... Um, given that the UK government, you know, big their, their big diplomatic effort over the last year was to try and get the rich world to pull together 100 billion US dollars to go to poorer countries to help them tackle climate change. If at the same time you're cutting your own foreign aid, that doesn't really help very much. Similarly, talking about trying to phase out coal at the same time as having a coal mine uh, potentially going through planning system in Cumbria, just a short you know, hour or two drive from Glasgow, got noticed and I'm told got used by, as an example, by some of the other countries to say, well, you're doing that. And, you know, the the stupid thing about this is, and Boris Johnson said publicly if it was down to him, he'd make the decision not to allow the Cumbria coal mine. But um, he might not be involved in the planning process, but he could change planning policy in the UK to ban coal. He's the Prime Minister! Of exactly. course he can bloody stop he it can, if he wants to. He can change to. other exactly. bits of law when he wants to, can't he? I can't yes. think of anything that comes to mind. Exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. ludicrous. And then similarly, of course, uh, you know, their, their desire to, the government's desire to look for yet more oil and gas in the North Sea. I mean, so all that gets noticed. I mean, there's been a lot so of those, attention. Those that, are the things that like campaigners and gobby podcasts like us say. We say yeah. it's hypocritical. You can't be doing these things on the one hand and trying to negotiate climate deals on the other. But I kind of always assumed that that was what we gobby campaigners say and isn't necessarily as noticed kind of in a uh, besuited negotiator world but you're saying it i had it an really official is. from the uk government say to me in the last week it was really unhelpful ngos talking about the Cumber coal mine because it got used against them to which my response is well why don't you as government stop it don't do, do you know? a coal mine then well no nah. Well, the PM seems to be completely in the dark. Good. Excellent. (laughs) Anything else? And the other thing is, is that uh, the criticism was that, I mean, obviously it was good in one sense. I'll give you this one thing. It was good that that, the sort of level of priority in in one one sense and even the rhetoric that the Prime Minister gave to this, again, it is helpful to dial that up. But the fact is, time and again, he came in uh, to do a press conference but didn't actually then do some of the diplomacy actually was he phoning no. up other world leaders around the world and and trying to move things forward did he phone up prime minister modi for example at the weekend around the coal thing and try and shift things forward and uh, all the evidence is he didn't and so that's what he could and should have done and um but there's too much there was a real sense from people there that he was in it to try and get headlines rather than to to shift a, the shift it forward in the way that you'd like
you were there for two weeks and everyone was there very stressed, working very hard during the day, in a little bubble, in her own little world. I'd imagine that there was some steam that got let off and some people behaved in a way that they might not have behaved if they were, you Ooh, know, hello. fully t- fully kind of energised and exasperated by international climate process. So I want to know which country and its delegates or, you know, its, it's civil society or whatever, generally behaved the worst. And obviously, if you want to name names, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I, you know, you don't have to. There was quite a lot of people from quite a lot of countries that discovered that Glasgow is an absolutely fantastic city. <laughs> a lot better than I remembered it. And uh, what was very nice about this COP is I've been to COPs before now, like when the convention centre really is miles out of town and so on. With this COP, you could walk from the convention centre into the centre of Glasgow or into the west end of Glasgow. And there's amazing, turns out there's amazing bars and amazing restaurants. And uh, Turns uh, out, Cray. Excuse me, the last time I was in Glasgow was, I think, with you yes, uh, right. at a Lib Dem conference about and eight years ago. it wasn't a great memory. This is exactly my point, Ollie. My <laughs> memories of Glasgow last time round uh, were not as brilliant as they were this time round. Uh, uh, but it was trying fabulous. Not to that and then I did, I, we certainly discovered, a few of us discovered a few uh, pubs that uh, not only that sold whiskey, but didn't just sell a few bottles of whiskey that literally had like over 100 different bottles of whiskey. So that was quite interesting. And it, and it kind of is good fun that when you're doing that, you're there, you might be with your friends and people you know, but then also you bump into, for example, I bumped into the uh, PA of one of the ministers from Greenland there and had a very interesting discussion about Greenland. That was quite fun. And I introduced her to a few different types of whiskey as well. So, And she was very appreciative of that. So then you, these are <laughs> lovely things that happen uh, when you're at COPS. Appreciative the world as a does, yes. Yes, and the world does come together like that. And, and uh, there were, I think, in your stakes about countries that uh, let their hair down, uh, I think that's one area where Britain did quite well, actually. <laughs> British NGOs and government officials both. Right, that is just about it for this week's Babble. Thank you very, very much, Craig, for surviving two weeks of climate talks although it does sound like he managed to have a little bit of fun in there as well do you know i was i spent most of the cop being incredibly glad i wasn't there and a bit like sniffy about the people who went but i now sort of have fomo i sort of feel like i wish i was there well or buckle yourself in and off to sharm el sheikh next year all for cop 27 in egypt around about this time maybe we can go and uh actually that jump. sounds that sounds nice that'll be sunny and yeah. by the seaside well, you know, it's a good place because politicians are in denial. So <laughs> That's actually quite good. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, thank you very much to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast and to the splendiferous Arthur Stovall for the local What Adorns It and Us and our merchandise, what you can buy at wobblywobblywobbly.sustainababble.fish. Now, we have a special shout out for somebody who listens to this podcast and is splendiferous. We wanted to say happy birthday for, 
you know, a few days back because uh, we missed it, uh, to the wonderful Stephen Arrowsmith. Now, Luca Arrowsmith wrote to us. He wrote, he wrote to, to us. us. He wrote to us. He did. He wrote to us. Uh, saying that Stephen uh, is kind of very inspiring, very hardworking and uh, loves this podcast and would love a shout out. So this is what we're doing. We're shouting out to Stephen. Yeah, he's done loads of stuff on climate change. Stephen, it is appreciated. You should see all the lovely stuff. I can't read it all out. A beer all day. Get Luca to show you the email. But just loads of lovely stuff, including the sentence, he's the most hardworking person I have ever known and tries so hard at the same time to spend time with his family. And that, I think, is very nice. Well done, Stephen. If any other Babbel listeners out there have a birthday coming up, I mean, you can ask. You can ask. You can definitely ask. And if you want to ask, you can email us at hello at sustainababble.fish until we torch that email because it's full of PR guff. You can find us on the Twitter at the Babble Wagon or just search for Sustainababble on Facebook. Very good. Very good. Uh, I think that's everything we've done. We've thanked everyone. we told people how they can get in touch. Right, that's it. Give us some cash. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash sustainable. Give us some cash and do register for that Q&A. Uh, 7.30, I didn't say that earlier, 7.30 on the 9th of December. Uh, it will last an hour. It's with some really cool people who know a lot, genuinely know a lot about nuclear and have some very cool experiences. And we can talk all about that film. And you get a week to watch that film you don't have to watch the film on the 9th of December you can watch it before or after uh, so come and do that link will be in the show notes that's it I'm going home bye bye hey oh 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 hey oh oh hey oh oh, oh, oh. A, is this going to be a cop joke day hey oh I've actually go. got isn't. quite a bit of time before I'm due to do the kids' bed, so like you can <laughs> you can give this the big build up if you like. Oh well I can give you the man with an orange for a head joke then. Yeah, splendid. Go on then. Okay. So there's a man with an orange for a head. And he walks into a bar and the barman goes, Excuse me, sir, I can't help but notice you've got an orange for a head. And the guy goes, Yeah, that's right. Well if you get me a drink on the house, I'll tell you about it. And the barman says, Certainly. So he pours the uh, pours the guy a pint and says, tell me all about it. So the guy with an orange for a head says, well, well, it's a strange story. I was up cleaning out my loft and I found this old lamp and I polished it just to sort of tidy it up a bit. And this genie came out and he said, you have freed me from the tyranny of the evil lamp and I grant you three wishes. And the barman says, look, I'm not buying this, mate. All right, tell me what really happens. I, prom- I promise you, I promise you this is what happened. So the barman says, all right, but what was your first wish? He goes, well, well, for my first wish, I said to him, I'd like a billion pounds in my bank account, please, so-called genie. And the genie clicked his fingers and it was done. The barman goes, what, a billion pounds? Yeah, a billion pounds, just there. The barman goes, look, I'm not believing this story. Are you going to tell me the truth or not? Because I promise you this is what happened. So the barman said, all right, well, what was your second wish? And the guy said, I would like uh, to be friends with everyone I meet. Everyone I meet loves me. For the rest of my life, I'll be the most popular guy in any party, in any situation. And the barman goes, right. And did that happen? He goes, yeah, well, you like me, don't you? He goes, yeah, I love you. I love you. He goes, there you are. You see, and everyone I've ever met since has absolutely loved me. It's, It's amazing. The barman goes, I'm just not sure I buy this story back. I promise, I promise you, I promise you this is the truth. So the barman goes, what was your third wish? And the guy goes, well, I said, can I have an orange for a head, please?